Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 77 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser. On the other end of the Zoom call, Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Good. So we've got plenty to talk about in this episode of the podcast, mostly because a couple of weeks ago, you and I had a poke around a really quite special car collection. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that car collection. We're going to sh- sort of share what we can about it and talk about car collections generally. Um, before we do, though, I mean, the, we must talk about the Michael Schumacher documentary on Netflix, Schumacher it's called, um, criminally, I haven't watched it yet. I haven't had time. Um, but it came out Shocking. only a few days ago. <laughs> Shocking, I know. It came out a few days ago, um, and it's had a load of press, hasn't it? There's loads of people talking about it. Uh, I'm just curious to know what you thought of it. Well, I, I was. Uh, well, if you read the Instagram, so I, I, I wrote a piece in it saying um, that basically I was nervous about it because I think that families and you know, make no mistake, this is a production by the Schumacher family. It may be a different production company, a lot of pressure people made it, but it was made so much in conjunction with them. It's very much their view. And I just think that families are the worst people to make those sort of programmes because how, you know, if somebody wanted, not that they ever would, but somebody wanted to make a documentary about my family and were asking me about it, I'd say they're all wonderful because that's how I see them. That's not how the world um, necessarily sees anybody. So I was, um, you know, having been a bit disappointed by the Senna documentary, and I know I'm in a very, very small minority about that, but that was just a love letter to Ayrton. And as, you know, I don't think there are many bigger Ayrton Senna fans than me, but I just wanted to see a fully rounded picture. I wanted to get the full idea of this man in with all the light and shade and everything else, um, and I felt I never got that in the Senna documentary. And I just thought, well, there's no chance of getting that in the Schumacher, in the Schumacher documentary. And yet, there it is. 
that's the amazing thing. Um, you know, it's very much a, you know, it is a fond reflection on the man's professional life and his personal life. Um, and, you know, I don't imagine that anybody, even if you really, really felt you had good cause to, would want to put the boot into Michael, particularly given, you know, his sad current situation. Um, but there's no attempt to whitewash it. You know, they don't um, kind of, you know, skirt past, you know, the Damon incident in 94 or the Jacques incident in 97. Um, you know, and, you know, there, there are fascinating bits in it. There, you know, there's Jean Todd in, in 90, saying that in 99, after Schumacher had been there four seasons at the end of the 99 season and had not delivered a Drivers' World Championship, you know, Todd was saying, I was thinking, have we hired the wrong bloke? Should we not actually have Mika Hakkinen driving for us? And that's all on there. Um, there's Ross Braun talking about the Jack incident um, and saying, at the time he did it, because of the sort of person he is, Michael would have been absolutely sure that, that he did nothing wrong. Um, and so it wasn't like he thought, well, this is terrible, but I'm going to do it anyway. At that moment, what he thought he was doing was correct. And, he, and, and then Ross was saying that only on reflection, uh, when he saw the video and everything else, would he realise that actually what he did was indefensible. And it was a, a, it was a fantastic insight into the man. But B, it was actually, you know, even for someone like Ross, and everybody knows how close Ross and Michael were, um, it, was, it, it was quite critical of his character uh, and the way that he conducted himself in specific instances. So it's not this you know, uh, blind, you know, rose-tinted spectacles view of the man. Um, and it's all the better for it. The other thing that is great about it is it's so well-paced. So, you know, I thought, oh, goodness, so, so we're going to go through, you know, so, you know, once he got to Ferrari, we're going to go through the 2000 championship and the 2001, the 2002, three, four, and so on, all those, which are frankly really, really boring years for motor racing because he just won everything. Um, and I thought, oh, God, and we're going to have all Mercedes years as well because, you know, that's his most recent. And there's none of it. You know, there's so much on, you know, that first race at Spa with Jordan, 91, and then all the Benetton years. So building up, building up, building up. And then that critical moment in 94 when, you know, some would say he took out Damon uh, and denied Damon the, the championship. Um, and then... You know, soon after that, you're into Ferrari. And the the story of how he worked with the others to help transform Ferrari, that's really fascinating. And, you know, and, and all the real crowd-pleaser stuff like Spain 96 is in there. And then you get to 2000, which is his first championship year with Ferrari. And that's gone into, and the various battles that he had there. And then you think, hang on, there's only like 30, it's an hour, I think it's nearly two hours, and there's like only 13 minutes left. And you think, well, how are they going to do with it? And they just don't, because they understand like we understand that it's not that interesting um and i think the other thing about it which i i really appreciated was you know they couldn't ignore what happens at the end you know you watch the entire film and although it is a you know it's a very interesting uh and insightful view particularly on the personal side with you know with his children and him growing up and so on and so forth you know that this event is coming um, and when you get to it, um, there are some, you know, they, they reveal nothing about his current condition in specific terms. But you do have Mick saying he'd give it all up 
just to be able to talk about his shared love of motorsport with his father. So clearly he can't do that. Um, and you've got Coroner, his wife, saying she'd give it all up just to have him back. And then saying, although, of course, he's still here. And so, you know, you don't need, you know, a doctor to give a bulletin to know that it's, you know, it's terrible. It must be. And apparently, and I haven't seen any of this because, you know, I don't sort of read the sort of papers that would say so. But apparently the documentary has received some criticism for not delving deeper into that particular incident and, and, and the results of it and everything else. And, you know, I, 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 well, I do understand it, I'm afraid. But what's that phrase? Just because it interests the public doesn't make it in the public interest. And, um, you know, I think, actually, I think they do really, really well. And I think they provide enough not to sort of, you know, ignore it. Um, and it's personal and it's poignant and it's very sad. Um, I thought it was a beautiful documentary. Um, I thought so much better than the Senna film. Uh, and so unexpectedly so. Yeah, um, I was... I was fascinated by it. I was moved by it. It didn't annoy me at all. The problem with people like you and me is because, I get just because of what we do, we know a bit, um, the capacity to, for these pr- programs to annoy people like you and me because you think, well, he's talking rubbish and that didn't happen the way they said it. It's just none of that. It's all quite straightforward. And also the other thing about it is you don't have, you know, motoring journalists waffling on relentlessly. Um, What you do have, all the talking heads are there. Almost everybody that, you know, from Bernie to Damon, um, everybody, Flav's on, everybody is, whether you like them or not, all the important people are there with the exception, I would say, of um, Brundle's not on it, which I think is an omission, um, and Jacques Villeneuve's not on it. but I think we probably know what his point of view would have been. Um, lovely. Great, great, great um, documentary. Um, if you're thinking about, you know, taking out a Netflix trial, do it for that. Uh, and I'm not being paid by Netflix to say it. I think it's just, I think it's just a great, great piece of work. Well, brilliant. I, I mean, I, have, I will go and watch it this week. Um, it's almost an impossible, unwinnable task, isn't it, for the producers of something like that? Because there will be diehard motorsport enthusiasts who want more detail... Um, broader coverage of his career, early career, the, the other stuff that he did. But then it also, you know, if you only produce a show, a, a film for those people, yeah. you know, a few thousand will watch it. It, need, it needs to reach a big audience. So, but, but, but they do have they do have some of that stuff in there. You know, there's bit, mm. bits at the beginning. You know, his, there's quite a bit of his karting career in there, and about how they used to go and nick ruined tires people used to take the tires off their carts and chuck them in the bin and he'd go and fish them out of the bin stick them on his cart and go and win he was you yeah. know the other thing you didn't really appreciate is you know you'd sort of think that you know like everybody coming up almost everybody he, he only did it with huge backing he didn't at all he was just he was skint they lived hand to mouth and you know i think that's probably where he got his work ethic from um and yeah and there's more than enough of that early stuff there to uh, hopefully satisfy the people you're talking about um yeah it's great god i mean we could just talk about him for so long it's amazing to me that someone can win a couple of world championships with that sort of background um you know some eight figure sum over their early career probably and still have that drive and determination to keep going win five more titles I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a rare individual who has that kind of resolve and determination within them. Um, yeah, and, and, and you know, you're, you're, you, you are so right. And, you know, I often think, and I know that Lewis did, has had a couple of seasons, was with 
um, some teams where you know they weren't front-running teams. But for Michael in '95, um, having basically just walked the championship, um, to think right, well done that, and you know fine, but you know doing the same again doesn't interest me. I'm going to go to a champion, a, a team which is absolutely on its knees, um, and see if we can turn it around. And, you know, those four years, he went titleless because he was struggling to, you know, not just, you know, get Ferrari to build a faster car, but to overcome all the, you know, the bureaucracy and the weird ways that, you know, the Italians did things back then. Um, And I admire him all the more for it because if he hadn't done that, because he obviously could have gone to any team he liked, you know, he could have been the first person to get 10 world titles or, you know, he could have done it easily, but he didn't. He chose not to. He chose to do the harder thing and I admire him all the more for it. Great. Well, there you go. I mean, it does sound like you all need to go and watch it if you haven't already. Um, it, I mean, it now seems a bit bloody trivial going off and talking about car collections after that, but <laughs> that's the nature of the intercooler podcast, I suppose. So we're going to do it anyway. Well, I've um, got tea all over my laptop there. <laughs> okay, well... Uh, so, I mean, we did have a fairly extraordinary day, you and I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Um, yes. There's a, yes, it was quite extraordinary. <laughs> there's a, a chap who's a friend of ours who's uh, got just an extraordinary collection. We're not going to say who it is or where the collection is or give away too many details, purely because he's asked us not to. Um, and we're going to respect his, you know, his request for privacy. And if you happen to know who we're talking about, please do the same. Please don't say so. Yeah, um, and he was... Apart from, apart from anything else, we, if you do, we may not be allowed out in anything else again. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we want to go back. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's also, it's just, you know, um, I would hate for the, the trust that has been placed in us uh, and the privilege of being able to drive this stuff to be repaid by betraying his confidence. Um, so we're not going to do it. Yeah, that's, that's right, and his generosity as well. I mean, he, he opened the collection up to us and... Almost the first thing he said was, pick a car, pick a couple of cars, and we'll take them out, <laughs> which is just an extraordinary thing to hear. Um, so it's, it, was, it wasn't even, um, I've got a couple of amazing cars uh, for you guys to drive. It was just like we were standing there and they went, well, that one or that one or that. And well, we chose, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, and so, I mean, we're going to talk about a handful of the cars that we, were, uh, that we took out. We're not going to tell you everything that's in there because, I mean, that's all part of the, the sort of mystery and the intrigue of a collection like that. Um, they like to keep it quiet so that they can surprise people. But, I mean, it's, you wouldn't, from the side of the road, you would not know it was there at all. Um, it's a sort of subterranean garage. It's enormous. Um, and you, you walk down the steps and see just these most incredible cars from all different eras um but and they're in theory they're all on the key aren't they um i mean with well, with older thing. stuff yeah with older stuff it's, it's not necessarily that straightforward but in theory they're all ready to go well i mean the, i think the fact and we talked about drip trays on this podcast before um yeah every single car has got a drip tray underneath it uh, which means you know there's oil in the engine and you know and, and also you know they're all on trickle chargers and you know that says to me you know cars are on the button um, and the fact that we were able just to go, well, we'll take that one and that one and, you know, and fire them up and off we go. Um, you know, it says it all, really. Um, and I think, 
it's very interesting because um, I know obviously we're talking about collection because that is technically what it is, but um, the owner doesn't talk about a collection at all. Because I think when you think about a collection, you think about, frankly, a bunch of museum pieces, cars just sitting there with a light sort of light covering of dust, slightly flat tires, and, um, you know, haven't been driven for 40 years. Um, that's not this at all. They're all, they're the, 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 they are all good to go. And they're all used. Um, that's the thing they all get used um, some of them are worth well all of them are, are incredibly valuable cars but some of them worth, are worth astronomical quantities of money and I just so admire people who just think to themselves well yes I know it's a risk and um, it is a bit of a leap but what's the alternative the alternative is to reduce them to being something to look at if you buy a bit of art stick it on your wall that's fine because that's what it's designed to do its job is to be looked at. It's not a car's job. A car's job is to be driven. And they get that. Um, luckily for us. So mm. we did. <laughs> um, I mean, there are some very, very significant cars in there. Le Mans winners among them. I mean, yeah, it's it, the, the whole place is, it actually does look like a museum. It looks like you're going into a, a very sort of high-end car museum but they're not museum pieces at all because they're all ready to go um but so we took out what do we do do we take out three cars or four cars maybe three cars i think um and the the first one that you drove and i drove it later on as well was uh, the aston martin db3s so the last works db3s a very very significant car in aston martin's racing history um I mean, it was the oldest car that I've ever driven. And I've wrote about it for the Intercooler, actually. It's on the app now. The oldest car I'd ever driven and far and away the most valuable car I've ever driven. Just a a sum of money that I can't really wrap my head around. And yet, there it is. Jump in. Let's go. Let's do some driving. Um, And away we go on some local country lanes. Um, Just the most extraordinary experience. And I think what surprised me so much about that car, and it's a sort of late 50s car but the db3s was designed sort of early or mid 50s early 50s um, yeah early 50s yeah is actually how modern it felt um and you said to me it's basically an mx5 um slightly glib but <laughs> i mean it had a well, h pattern no, just in terms of the way you operate it it is <laughs> yeah it is h pattern manual a, gearbox yeah um, two-seat open sports car yeah mm, pedals in the familiar order yeah. so yeah, I mean, you the way you operate it, it is like like a modern MX-5, something like that. Um, and actually, that's that's not necessarily true of all sort of competition cars of that era. There was another car in that collection with a centre throttle, um, which we were we were hoping to drive. Um, we weren't able to because it it wouldn't get going that one. But I just I suspect despite always driving, about all of them being on the button. But I think they thought that that had some. Um, this new one leaded petrol with ethanol in it, which had gummed up the carbs or something. But yeah, sorry, go on. A sense of throttle. I just, I suspect if I was taking my time um, and, you know, driving very sort of cautiously and consciously, I could get my head around it. But it's when you have to do something all of a sudden and, yeah. you know, your, your spine takes over and bypasses your brain and it sends a message to your foot saying, stand on the middle pedal to stop. <laughs> yeah. I just... It frightens the life out of me, particularly it's in a when, very valuable It's when car. you don't have time to think. That yeah. stuff really, really blows my mind. I suspect you're much more familiar with that sort of thing than I am. I am because you know I've 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 been very I've been so blessed to have been 
to have grown up driving really old cars. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I'm no better at it than you would be if you'd done that. It's just something, it's like anything, you just learn how to do it. Um, familiarity. Yeah. And then you, you, you get in a car and all I can say is, you know, you obviously need to know it's got a centre throttle, but once you do, you don't think about it again. You just don't think about it. It's like, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like when you get into a left-hand drive car, do you have to think to yourself to use your right hand to change gear? Well, you do go to open the door once, don't you, when you're not familiar with it? Yeah, you do but, but reach once for the you're sitting handle. in the car, once you're sitting in the car, every time you change gear, you're not driving along and thinking, oh, damn, there's not a gear lever. And you're not, you, just don't, you just don't think about it, do you? You're, you're, you're Something in there knows to do it. And it's exactly the same with the centre throttle. You know the car's got centre throttle because you can see it, just like you can see the steering wheels on the left-hand side of the car. And something on the right, okay, fine. So when I want to slow down, the foot goes right, not left. Done. Mm. <laughs> okay, I'll take your word for it then. But this, I mean, the Aston, it didn't have a centre throttle. It's, it's very, very familiar. Um, and, I mean, you had to be patient with the gearbox um, because it would crunch and grind gears if you sort of hurried it. Um, I wondered if I needed to be rev matching on the way down if I need to be double declutching or whatever but actually you just need to be patient just be steady yeah. with it and it's fine yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the reason for that is um, that this was obviously an Aston Martin from the David Brown era so it has a David Brown gearbox in it and before he bought Aston Martin David Brown was a tractor manufacturer um, and made gearboxes as well and um, all those cars always had I mean the one that succeeded the DBR1 had a horrible gearbox in it um, people sort of used to come out with their hands. Used to be they used to say their hands were like a sort of bit of raw steak after they've been driving that. So um, it says everything about the car, nothing about you. Uh, but it's, you know, you just got to be slow. You just got to take your time, which isn't what your brain wants to do in a racing car. You think it should be bang, bang, bang. But if you do that, it'll just you know. And also, you know, the only way back then to make a gearbox strong, as they had to be to survive twenty four hours, was to you know put big bits of metal in it. Um, which you know are heavy and take time to move about, so so that, that that's why it is like that. Mm, that'll be why. Um, so I think you said while we were looking at these cars that most of the works Aston drivers in the day actually preferred the DB3S to the DBR1. Is that true? Yeah, I think. Oh, I think the thing about the DB3S. I mean, two things to say about the DB3S. I'll come back. Well, that's the second one. The first thing is. It was for Aston Martin's first successful post-war racing car. Um, they had a thing called the DB3, which was underpowered and overweight. Um, and although the DB3S sounds like a sort of slightly modified version of that, and it was loosely derived from the DB3, the DB3 only only ever won one slightly significant race. It won a nine-hour race at Goodwood, which wasn't an international race at all. Um, but the DB3S, which was almost a new car, um, you know, it came second at Le Mans three times. Um, it was. It never quite had the power of the big Ferraris. Certainly not the 300 SLR Mercedes, which obviously it it came up against um, in power races or aero races like Le Mans. You know they weren't going to keep up with the D types in a straight line because they didn't have the aerodynamic efficiency. But to drive, the drive they just loved them because they were so they just handled beautifully. They were such to drive those cars the way they need to be driven to extract a lap time from them. You, know, you have to slide them all the time, and you know, I've, I've driven a few cars of, of that era, and some of them are really tricky. Some of them, you just want to think, this thing is just trying to kill me. It just wants to send me off over that aspect. And a DB3S is just, it's just, you kind of, it's like a sort of 60s alpha. It's, it's just so easy. And you can see, you know, drivers who, you know, 
obviously mindful of the consequences of losing control of a car at high speed back then, uh, which are rarely pleasant, um, thinking, well, actually, I can drive this car the way this car needs to be driven. And it gives such margins and it's so communicative and so predictable that you just feel safe in it. Um, you really would. Um, the only unsafe ones were they made some coupes early on, um, which are just aerodynamically completely unstable at Le Mans in 54. The two coupes both went off, had massive accidents at completely different times on exactly the same corner uh, because they just took off. Um, but other than that, they're beautiful cars. Lovely, lovely thing. It was amazing to get to drive it. You know, this was this was a car that Roy Salvadori raced at Le Mans. Um, and just you just sort of get swept away by the history um, and how significant it all is. Um, but what really struck me, a couple of things. I mean, one, the gear shift. So you're right, you have to be very slow and steady and patient with it. But it, it amazes me that these guys were able to do so without actually losing momentum. Um, well, they did. Well, okay, they must have done. But minimizing the, the momentum loss. To be, to be driving at 10 tenths and still manage to be patient with that, that gearbox that requires you to be slow and steady. I think that's extraordinarily skillful. But really, the sort of lasting impression I had was just how exposed I felt. Um, I'm just, you know, someone who grew up with modern cars. My first car was a Ford Focus. Um, I'm just, to be in a car that's totally open with only a tiny little aero screen, no belts, um, I'd... I just could never imagine feeling comfortable in something like that being driven quickly or driving quickly. Um, I just, you know, I just think if I hit something at 30 miles an hour, even at 30 miles an hour, my face is going to hit that steering wheel or, or the dashboard or something. Yeah. And I but ju- they, didn't have that, they didn't have that perspective, did they? they no. didn't, you know, they just thought the reason they didn't wear belts is because they thought if I'm going to hit something, um, I'm better off out of the car than in it. So, you know, that's it. They didn't have our modern, cosseted, comfortable, you know, um, safety-first approach to things. They just, that was the fastest racing car that they could get their hands on, so they went and raced it. So while I was driving the DB3S, you were leading the way uh, in an Alfa Romeo 8C, Tazio Nuvolari's car. I mean, uh, and I was driven in it earlier in the day, and I just, I saw how much skill it took just to operate the thing. You really have to be very, very careful and precise with the gear shift. It's nothing like the, the Aston one. So, so just tell us what that thing was like to drive and how significant it felt as well. <sighs> to, sit in, to sit there and think, this is the steering wheel, those are the pedals, these are the instruments that Tazio Nuvolari looked at. I mean, the first thing you've got to get your head around is the complete, I was about to swear, but just your mind is blown just by the prospect of doing it and you're in this thing you know this is a car that Nuvolari led the 1932 in. he binned it actually so reputedly looking at somebody else's accident which is a very un-Nuvolari like thing to do um, but the car is obviously exquisitely beautiful um, I mean staggeringly rare uh, and with its provenance um and you know, and, and its history, uh, one of the most must be one of the most valuable pre-war cars in existence. Uh, and so, once you've kind of realised all that and then calmed down a bit, um, <laughs> you, 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 you've got to drive the thing. Um, and you know, all those old cars—they're all different to each other. 
you know, even the ones that are laid out the same. Um, you know, the gearbox is, you know, you have to, because there are no, there's no synchromesh, so you have to time everything. So what you have to do is, whichever, is to make sure that the engine is at whatever speed it's, it needs to be at to accept the next gear for the speed that you're doing. So, and that changes according to the gear ratio. So if you have a, first and second are quite close in terms of their ratio, you probably got quite a quick change, but then you might have a, a big gap between second and third. Actually, in those cars, usually they have the big gap is between third and fourth because they need to go down the Mulsanne straight. So they put a really high fourth. So you can go back, bank, bank, bank through second and third, and then third to fourth could be while you're just waiting for the revs to fall far, far enough so that you're in the and then obviously on the way back down the box you've got to do exactly the same thing but in reverse and instead of waiting for the engine to slow down you have to speed it up yourself by blipping the throttle and you've got to blip the throttle to the revs that you're going to need for the gear that you're going into um and it does sound awfully complicated and it kind of is but again it's more complicated than it is hard um once you understand what you're trying to do and once you have learnt the gaps between the ratios it becomes easier to do it um and also the other thing the great comfort is that people weren't any better changing gear in 1932 than they are today and so they the gearboxes were built to take a lot of punishment because people were you know crunching and scraping and doing everything because you know they're not easy i mean that's what you know if it had been easy then there would have been no need for synchromesh to be invented um so and, and I find with all these things, I'm always much better in these cars when I'm alone because it's particularly if there's an owner sitting next to me, you're just thinking, oh, don't screw this up, don't screw this up. Uh, and of course, then you tense up. And what you have to do is you just have to relax. And if instead of going, you're just, then it just kind of works. Um, and you have to give yourself time to think. Um, but this thing, oh my goodness, it was so fast. In 1932 car, nearly 90-year-old car, you just get held up by everything. I mean, this car, which, you know, despite, you know, breeze block aerodynamics would genuinely have done at least. I mean, I think in the first section um, of the Miller Million, 1932, which would have probably been 100, 150 miles or whatever, he averaged over 100 miles an hour, averaged in this thing. So, you know, just think how fast he must have been. You know, there would have been tight corners in there and, you know, and the brakes are terrible and there wouldn't be an awful lot of grip. And yet he still averaged over 100 miles an hour. Um, you know, this is a car which would do, you know, even today, it would do 130 plus, you know, easily. And it's 90 years old. Um, and, and the only problem with that is, is that they were actually, even back then, they were quite good at getting engines to deliver a lot of power. I mean, that engine's probably got... I don't know, um, a supercharged straight eight, you know, it'll be, it'll be in the 200 somewhere, um, certainly, uh, maybe a bit more, um, but they weren't that great. So they're really, really good at acquiring speed. They just weren't very good at getting rid of it again. Um, and these big drum brakes, um, A, they just don't offer much retardation. You also obviously got to think about the limitation of the tyres that you're on, um, which don't have an awful lot of grip um but they also you know they get hot quickly and then they go away so you know you're constantly having to manage the brakes um and but but the other thing which was just so great about it was having our mate sat next to me and instead of saying oh you know could you just keep it to to four thousand just just be a bit careful here he'd just go 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 he kept saying (laughs) ring it out ring it out um so i did 
Um, wow. And so you just, you know, so you just get that kind of brief glimpse. And of course you don't because it's fantasy land. But, you know, you can almost sort of just about kind of convince yourself, not that you're Nuvolari, but that you're having a not entirely unrelated experience to the one that Nuvolari had in the same car. Which, of course, you're not. But nevertheless, you know, you're in the car. You've got your foot as far down as it will go. That engine, that straight eight engine, twin cam straight eight Vittorio Yano engine is just making the most ridiculous noise. Supercharger howling away and you're, you know, legging it down the road. Just thinking, what am I doing here? Absolutely ridiculous, but um, indescribably wonderful. And yeah, um, I just, I just can't believe we did it. I just cannot believe because sometimes, you know, I, because of, you know, how I've done my job for a while, you know, I get to drive amazing cars in quite prescribed circumstances on maybe on racetracks or whatever. But just to, you know, go out this bloke's drive, turn left, and head off into the into the countryside in Nuvolari's Alpha. I oh, just, it just, it just blew me away. Yeah, um, as you could probably tell. <laughs> So I didn't drive the Alpha, but I did ride in it with the owner driving. And there's no question that being in that car, driving it or being driven in it, gives you a newfound appreciation for what those guys were able to do back in the 20s and the 30s. I just, it's the fact that Nuvolari averaged over 100 miles an hour through a section of the Mille Media is just, that's just utterly mind-blowing to me. It's as astonishing to me as, uh, as it is that you know, present day Formula One drivers are able to drive thousand horsepower Formula One cars with all that aero that they've got flat out. I just, I, I can't compute either. I just, it just, neither one makes any sense to me. So yeah, just to be able to sit in that thing while it was driven briskly. And the, the, and the thing is, the more, and, and, and the slightly ironic thing is the more you understand the product, the less you understand how they did what they did in them. Because you just think, you just couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. You, you know, even if the car technically were capable of it, you know, you just think, I'd just be too scared. I'd just, you know, I would spend my entire life thinking, you know, I'm about to die. I'm about, and you just take, and so, so because, you know, the instinct of survival is what it is. You just, you just stop. But they didn't. They kept going. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Newfound appreciation for what they did. Honestly, it's, it was really staggering. Um, Okay, and so the the other car that we went out in was quite different, um, and uh, it had a couple of shotguns uh, attached to the out to the to the side of it, outboard shotguns. Um, <clears throat> a quite significant car. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about it, please? I, I rode in the back, so it's it's a it's a, a sort of three seater thing with a very comfortable, almost armchair like seat in the back. I had a lovely time. Yes, it's a, it was a Rolls-Royce Phantom. I think people will call it, these days call it a Phantom 1, although obviously, like most things that were first it, at the time, it was only a Phantom. Um, and it belonged to a Maharaja in, in India uh, when it was new. Uh, and the reason for the, for the shotguns, um, and I'm not going to make a judgment on this, I think we probably all feel similar sorts of ways about uh, this particular uh, activity, but, you know, it was used for going out big game hunting um and yeah and i should say now that the shotguns have been welded up they've had their pins removed so they are entirely ornamental shotguns but nevertheless um so we'll 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 forget what it was used for we'll just talk about driving it this was not sure what year it was it would have been early 20s i think um and if ever you wanted to understand 
why Rolls Royces from that era are just known as the best cars in the world. Just go out in this because it was it was so, it was uncanny the way that it rode, the silence and smoothness of it. So I mean, literally, you come to a you come to a stop at a crossroads or whatever, you can't you really can't hear the engine. Um, big what is it? Straight straight six seven liter engine. Um, you know, basically in terms of the gears, um, which again had to be learned, same sort of thing. Um, but really your mission is to get into top gear because once you're in top gear, you can relax because basically there's nothing. It won't go up in top gear. Um, so enormous wheelbase. I made the mistake of saying it was like driving a lorry, um, which probably wasn't the kind of thing to say, but I only meant it in terms of, you know, when you get to a corner, you can't just turn in because, you know, you've got to remember where the back is and you can't, you find yourself sort of, you know, driving around the outside of corners as you do if you're in a, you know, a big van or whatever. Um, but just a totally different sort of experience. Um, not fast, I mean, faster than I thought it was going to be, but, um, just the most amazing thing for wafting along and just feeling the quality of everything that nothing was done you know down to a price everything was the best it could be um and yeah i mean such variety such variety in terms of what there was to drive from back there um and okay you know if i could drive that or nuvolari's alphas again you know i'd take the red one but you know um just as a completely different form of motoring experience um and also you know just the pure privilege of being out in something as rare and special as that um yeah it was wonderful it was wonderful we're a lucky really, boy really there, weren't we very much so and thank you to the owner for inviting us along um so i just want to talk about another car collection that we had a poke around recently and i'm sorry the owner won't thank me for calling it a collection for the reasons you explained earlier. Yes, an accumulation. Um, an accumulation. So this is uh, a friend of ours. And actually, we, we filmed um, this collection. And it is on the app in the video and podcast section if you want to go and have a look. Um, it's a, a friend of ours who's got, I think it's sort of 12 or 13 cars, maybe a couple more than that. Um, and it's rather more modest than the, the other collection we had a look at. But still very special. Um, and what struck me about it, actually, is that, you know, the, val- the total value of the cars in in that lineup probably you know adjacent to the value of an aston martin valkyrie something of that order um and i just wonder which way you would go if it was your money would you rather have the valkyrie or would you rather have the clk black series the m3 csl the gt3 rs 4 liter the 996 rs 911 no club sport the e30 m3 no the 675 lt the carrera gt yeah it's a point very well well made but of course I, I guess the other point is that if you've got a valkyrie that's not going to be your only car um it's going to be one of one of plenty of other things but no if, it, if that were the situation i wouldn't you know what one car that you can't really use other than on the most specialist of circumstances or a load of wonderful cars you can just get into and drive all the time but there's absolutely no contest none whatever um and no, my only um, reservation about um, having, I don't know, a dozen or so cars under one roof, and I know this because, you know, I don't have a dozen cars, but I've got four or five. Um, and even with four or five, you know, the only downside to, to, to having those cars is the guilt you feel of not using them as often as you should. Um, and, 
you know, I had to, uh, I drove my caterer very briefly this morning because someone needs to put a new throttle cable on it. So I just dropped it off on my way to the train station. And, you know, it was great to get it out and fire it up and take it over there. But I suddenly thought to myself, well, you know, we're coming to the end of the summer. When did you last drive it? It's probably been a month. Um, I'm doing a big trip in it next weekend. But um, I felt bad about it. And I felt bad about going to it and seeing the 2CV there and seeing the Land Rover there and the little Fiat 500 and thinking, well, those guys haven't moved very much recently. And, you know, we live busy lives and, you know, and hopefully, you know, the day will come when, you know, you can, we can afford to, to relax a bit and maybe the stuff will get used some more. But, um, yeah, um, but no, the answer to your question is there's just no question at all. I mean, you know, but there are probably individual cars in there. I mean, OK, what would you derive more pleasure from having something like a Valkyrie or a Project One or a 675LT. Because if you believe in my mantra, which I always bang on about, about the amount of enjoyment you get from the car is however much fun it is to drive, multiplied by the number of times you get to drive it, then, you know, to me, a 675LT or a 4-litre RS are, yeah, I just enjoy them more. I'd feel I'd worry about them less um but i'd just be in them you know on how many occasions that you might drive your 675 lt would you also think about driving your valkyrie well there'll be track days and that sort of thing but you might just want to go on holiday or go away for the weekend or you know take their your kid to school or go to a business meeting or anything anything at all um and you just can't do that in these in these other things so yeah to, to me no contest it's fun to dream, isn't it? And just imagine if you had the means, yes. what kind of collection you'd pull together. Sadly, it is dreamland for me. Um, but I, t- I suspect that with a, a, you know, a low seven-figure sum, I think I'd like five cars, five or six cars, and I'd have real variety in there. And I wouldn't have two cars that did the same job either. So I think I'd have a modern-ish supercar. I think I'd have a classic. I think I'd have a daily. I think I'd have a fun hot hatch of some sort i'd have some sort of 911 maybe it's an old one i don't know but i I just i think that would keep me happy to to know that there aren't 12 or 15 cars that i need to think about and try and use regularly but a smaller number uh with real real spread across the board i think i think that would keep me happy yeah me too (laughs) such a position (laughs) maybe one day um Good. Okay. Well, let's leave that one there. Uh, yeah. I mean, very special to get to go and have a look around that um, that remarkable collection of cars and take a few of them out as well. Um, so we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It really does help us find new podcast listeners. Do Please do it. Um, and then go and download the Intercooler app as well and start your one month free trial. You'll like it. Um, as ever. watch the Schumacher documentary. Watch the Schumacher documentary. Yeah, I mean, that's aimed at me as much as anyone, isn't it? I will go and do that, and I'll, and I'll report back. Uh, and as ever, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Thanks, all. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.